0: Welcome to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities book talks. Uh, and this week we are joined by Ali Palmer, who's a postdoc uh, at University of Oxford. Uh, and she will talk about her new book, Ethical Dilemmas in Orangutan Conservation. So the floor is all yours.
1: Great, thanks very much for the intro. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a postdoc currently, I'm actually in geography, which is a new field for me. Although closely related, this is sort of nice overlapping areas in there of human animal studies that spans across all different fields. Um, but I'm an anthropologist by training. Um, in particular, I actually have a, a sort of half and half background in primatology and social anthropology, which I think is an important reason for why I wrote this book in the first place. It was really motivated by a, an interest in orangutans, a real concern about them. Um, this what, The book is quite closely, but not completely, based on my PhD thesis, which I did at UCL, University College London, and finished in 2018. So it's come out quite quickly after the PhD, so it hasn't really evolved much. But I, I'm considering doing some more work with the material in the book. Um, it's kind of a, like most PhDs, probably kind of a long-winded tale uh, of how how on earth I chose the subject, um, but just to kind of summarize briefly, I did my master's years ago at a zoo where I looked at um, relationships between orangutans and their keepers, um, and that got in quite a lot to sort of the ethical dilemmas of zoos, and also in particular of, of how you, how we should treat our non-human great ape can, given their sort of high intelligence and their close relationship to us. Um, So that kind of inspired the the interest in orangutans and also human animal relationships and in particular ethics. Um, And I really wanted to expand out those kind of interests into the broader area of orangutan conservation. I ended up, I started out thinking I would look at collaboration and conflict between orangutan conservation NGOs. It's possibly like many other areas of conservation, it's quite a there are a lot of different organizations doing this, they don't necessarily agree on methods, how or why to do it, so I was quite interested in in those relationships and it ended up quite quickly turning into a focus though on a more specific question which was how and why should well whether how and why should we do rehabilitation and reintroduction because this turned out to be quite a kind of point of contention I suppose that came up in early interviews so just to briefly summarize many of you may know this already rehabilitation essentially is when you take in um, animals that have been kept as pets or similar Um, in orangutans cases they're orphans who've been kept as pets for a short time or a long time, it's quite variable. Um, They've lost their mothers at some point through through various mechanisms such as deforestation. They might've been specifically poached. That might be less common than the sort of like incidental ending up in someone's house. Um, So anyway, they're taught taught to be orangutans again, if you like, through a kind of a a process that involves socializing, but also helping them develop um, survival. And then they're reintroduced, which is the politics of the terminology are actually quite interesting. But basically, it just means releasing them back to the forest. Um, this obviously sounds like a really nice thing to do. And also, like, in theory, it should be something that's supported by people who are keen on conservation, but also people who are interested in animal welfare, mostly, and even rights, you know, you could see this as like a, a, a win-win for everyone kind of activity. But as it happens, it's quite controversial. Um, So so I was really interested in that. The book itself takes quite a sort of, I suppose it's written for quite a broad audience in mind. Um, It's targeted at environmental humanities and social science researchers, but also very much conservationists. So it's a little bit kind of light on theory, I suppose, for that reason that I wanted to make it quite readable. Um, And I suppose if I did have a sort of one thing that I really wanted people to get out of it, it was this idea that actually reflecting on how and why conservation is done is really important. It's just, even if you end up not agreeing with people who have a different approach, I think it's really important to kind of acknowledge the different reasoning that can actually be underpinning this this thing that often seems quite sort of monolithic, like, oh, we all know what conservation is. It's actually a huge array of different values and practices and it's internally very diverse. And I think it's really important to Acknowledge that and think about it if we're trying most uh, One and are actually best for the animals so um, I Sorry, let me just wrote some notes about what would be interesting to say. So essentially the 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 key focus of the book really is to look at um, how conservationists make trade-offs in the course of their work Um, so uh, And actually, the people I interviewed uh, talked about this in terms of triage, which is probably, as we all know now, uh, quite prominently in particular from the coronavirus crisis is in relation to hospitals. But it's essentially this idea that if you've limited resources, you've limited time, you've limited space, uh, you've limited money, you're going to have to make some decisions about which individuals, maybe which sort of values to prioritize and in the process which to kind of allow to die, essentially. So it's kind of quite a harsh process, but it's also something that uh, my interviewees talked about a huge amount. Um, So so that's essentially the focus of the book. Um, And what I wanted to do was to just understand how and why they make those decisions. So I use the concept of ordinary ethics, which is something that
0: anthropologist
1: Michael Lampick, it's called ordinary because it's meant to be distinct from the sort of philosophical, the the abstract kinds of ethics that we talk about in philosophy. This is not just even applied ethics, this is on the ground, messy, everyday reality ethics of people sort of trying to sort out what the best thing to do is in this very complex and and complicated situation. So that was kind of the overall framing device. um, And I was talking about triage through the lens of ordinary ethics. Um, and the goal was to, yeah, to, to see how and why these decisions are made. Um, methodologically, um, I describe this as a multi-sided ethnography, and I say that in part because when you think about the community of orangutan conservationists, this might not seem intuitively obvious, but it, it became very clear once I started research, is that everyone knows each other. You know, they, they, they're a dispersed community, but they are a community. They meet up at conferences, uh, they probably visited each other's projects. They have a view on what each other's doing. This is particularly the people who are involved in rehabilitation, but actually it applies a bit more broadly as well to researchers and donors and so on. Um, so so I, I would say it's very much a study of a community, but they were dispersed. So as a result, actually my um, interviews, I did about 80 or so, and I sort of engaged with quite a few more people informally. About half of those were actually done online so i'm kind of ahead of the curve when it comes to coronavirus friendly research methods but it was just because i was a student and i had i had funding but i didn't have enough funding to fly to canada for one interview so it kind of <laughs> so there was a there was a bit of a, i don't know it worked fine actually to be honest and and i did do a lot of fieldwork as well which i think was really important so i was in indonesia and malaysia for a few months did a lot of interviews while i was there um, I went to most but sadly not all orangutan rehabilitation projects and the reason I didn't go to all of them was mostly because um, I didn't find out about a few of them until after I got back um, which kind of gives you a bit of a hint as to the complexity of some of this like even tracking down who's doing what can be a little bit difficult Um, and also a few more have popped up since So there are roughly speaking like about 15 of these projects but there are sort of there's probably actually a little bit more than that to be honest because there are probably a few I'm not aware of. Um, I thought I'd briefly give a chapter by chapter rundown just to tell you what the book covers um, to sort of facilitate any questions. So I start off by doing a chapter that essentially having a bit of an overview of who orangutans are, if you like. So that's really drawing on the primatology literature. Um, As I mentioned, I'm a primatologist by training and I I do find it really important to do what Tom Van Duren talks about, of trying to inspire some interest in the the creatures that we're actually talking about. So there's quite a lot there about, yeah, who orangutans are, but also um, how people have tried to conserve them over the years, specifically in Indonesia and Malaysia, which have their own kind of um, post-colonial histories of conservation, which are quite complicated. To, to summarize very briefly, a sort of really complicated situation in Malaysia, it's a little bit more state run. In Indonesia, it's a bit more, it's kind of a free for all of international NGOs. They just sort of all pop up. And if you have enough money, you can kind of go in more or less. State sounding a little bit more involved, but it's a bit more independent. Um, I then go on to talk about the so called rehabilitation debate which is certainly not something that just applies to orangutans, it applies to all sorts of different animals. Um, So essentially it goes through the arguments for why rehabilitation is or isn't a good conservation strategy. Again, to summarize quite a complex set of issues, it's kind of debatable how effective it is if you're interested in conserving populations, but, and it's really expensive. So is it worth doing? Why do it at all? I make the case that it's normally done because rehabilitators find the alternatives morally or emotionally unacceptable. Um, and those alternatives would essentially be killing these orphaned orangutans or keeping them in captivity. So there's kind of a, one of the alternatives argument that I, I think is what people are really getting at and why they do it. Um, I think I want to talk about, um, a, is, is essentially I start by by looking at a case of a, hotel or resort that claims to be doing rehabilitation in Malaysia, um, which was criticized by an activist group for using the term rehabilitation to cover for something that's just kind of exploitation in their view. So I use that as a starting point for thinking about the complexity of the term rehabilitation and also the term reintroduction and related terms like sanctuary, rescue center, release site, And I use the metaphor of boundary work in science to think about this, because I think it's quite a a useful analogy in a way, because it's quite similar. There's a a political advantage to using a term like rehabilitation center in most contexts. And so it's kind of a closely guarded term because it's so useful politically, but then at the same time, the boundaries between it and these other lesser categories are quite fuzzy. Um, So that's what um, chapter three, I've forgotten the numbers. Um, I then take a slightly different turn to look at the idea of um, saving, or oh, sorry, the practice rather of saving orangutan orphans. Hang on, no, I missed a chapter here, haven't I? Oh my gosh, I can't remember the order of these. Oh no, there we go. Yeah, sorry. I then look at the the, the idea of um, essentially rehabilitators as being over emotional and like they're just doing this, you know, useless practice out of some sort of um, yeah being excessively emotional, this is a common accusation that's leveled at like animal rights activists. So it's probably quite familiar, this this idea of, you know, sort of the over emotional animal rescuer. So look at that. Um, And I use Mary Midgley and Donna Haraway to to think this through. And essentially I conclude that usually when orangutan conservationists criticize rehabilitators, sorry, people doing rehabilitation for being guided by emotion, they're normally saying that they, not that they should have less emotion, but that the practice has unforeseen detrimental consequences that they haven't thought through properly. So it's a kind of not less emotion, but more thought kind of argument. At the same time, the critics of the sort of hard-headedness are kind of trying to say essentially that even if we have to make these tough decisions and do triage, it shouldn't be easy. So it's a kind of sharing suffering, Haraway kind of argument. So, anyway, I conclude essentially that, that both these sort of anti emotion and pro emotion sides have, have quite a point, really. And what they're, what they're all saying is we have to do triage, but we have to like feel bad about it, I suppose, to some extent. Um, so, having fleshed out the concept of triage, I then look at how it works in action, specifically in uh, rehabilitation center admissions and also translocation, which is where adult orangutans who are in some sort of conflict situation are moved to a different forest. Uh, In both cases, I discuss how there's essentially a risk of overcrowding in rehabilitation centers or in the forests that you translocate animals into. And so there's kind of a risk of compromising the welfare or or survival of um, existing residents, if you like. And so in this process, there's this inherent tension between um, the survival and welfare of known named individualized orangutans and these abstract apes, as they call them who you haven't yet met, you know they're there, maybe you can't see their suffering, but you can kind of imagine it. And as you'd expect, there is a kind of inherent bias towards the the named and known animals, which I think is understandable. I then go through in chronological order, some of the major debates about how to do orangutan rehabilitation, how much human contact do you encourage with infants? Do you bother separating out subspecies at release sites to avoid hybridization? How do you define unreleasability? How do you do post release monitoring, etc um, and in relation to each debate, I look at how arguments relate to questions about how to balance ethical principles when they 're in conflict, particularly wildness in the sense of being independent from humans, welfare, and also freedom or autonomy, which I suggest isn't exactly the same thing as wildness in some cases, um, and I in particular on that point I use the example of A particular orangutan who chooses to remain in the company of humans essentially. So she's been released, but she chooses to continue receiving food from humans and to kind of live in the presence of humans to greet them when they arrive at the center and so on. So I look at that as a a sort of question of, you know, what is freedom basically? What is autonomy? How do we think about this? Um, Which of course relates kind of to debates about um, our existence as humans as well as non human animals. So the next chapter I look at um, essentially ethical dilemmas in seeking funding. So basically, orangutan charities are in a position where they mostly have to take whatever they can. Obviously, some of these sort of conflicts have, have become quite publicized, like the risk of greenwashing if you're accepting corporate funding. But even the other sources of funding have their own kind of difficult ethical dilemmas. For example, if you're seeking funding from the public, you know, what kinds of images is it sort of ethically acceptable to use of cute baby orangutans? Are you sending the wrong kind of emotional message by portraying them as cute? Um, what if you, under what circumstances can you show humans with orangutans, which is an important part of the rehabilitation process, but at the same time, there's a worry that it will sort of encourage people to go out and get a pet or something. Um, So that's the funding chapter and then the final chapter is one that I suspect not many people will like, but I had to write it (laughs) that kind of makes sense. So this essentially kind of comes back to what I what I originally started the project looking at, which is conflict between NGOs. Um, Essentially, one of the first things that I found out when I was starting to talk with people was all the sort of disagreements, sometimes accusations. So in essence, this this kind of underbelly of conflict that can happen. Um, one interview we described it as the dark side of orangutan conservation. So the chapter in essence looks at the dilemma of whistleblowing um, faced by conservationists. You know, if another project is doing something that you think is bad practice or even doing more harm than good, under what circumstances is it better for the cause or for orangutans to speak out or to stay silent? Um, and in turn, that's actually, of course, a dilemma that we who study these issues face. So I also had that conflict, of course, is like, you know, what would it be appropriate to reveal or conceal here? Um, so, yeah, so, so that, that's essentially the last chapter. It, it gets into some issues about, you know, perceptions of people's motivations, who can criticize, like, can you only criticize if you're there working for the cause? Um, so yeah anyway that's the final chapter like I said I think maybe it's it's one that no one will be happy with but I'm reasonably happy with it so (laughs) so, um all right yeah so that's a brief overview of the book um I'd appreciate any questions
2: Great. Right. Thank you so much, Ali. And uh, yeah, as, as researchers, sometimes we have to write things that are both uncomfortable for our readers and uncomfortable for us. And that's actually our job, um, yes. which makes us very different, I think, than journalists who, who could write a potentially a, a book also about around conservation, but it would not be the same book um, that we as academics do. Yes. Um, so I think yeah. that's important to keep in mind.
1: The contrast with journalism is interesting as well, actually, because um, most of my participants were really accustomed to being interviewed by journalists. And so they kept being like, this is off the record. And I was like, what does that even mean? Like, <laughs> I'm not a journalist. Can you please clarify? <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I did wonder if sometimes that affected how people related to me.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. an interesting. Um, yeah, you know, thing to think about yeah your interviewees what i was wondering in this is because i mean and coming at it from your primatology background and the specific species that you're dealing with orangutans and their yeah closeness if you will as as primates to humans um how does that factor into the rehabilitation that's that's discussed um, versus, say, rehabilitating a, you know, bird that had its wing damaged. And and so you would rehabilitate it and then you would release it. But is there something that you found very special about the fact that these are like people?
1: Yes. I mean, that comes to it in all sorts of different ways. Methodologically, there's the, um, it, it's essentially, there's, an issue with any species that does it a huge amount of their sort of essentially their behavior is very very reliant on learning and so you've got a a situation then when you have these sort of infants who are going to learn everything they need to know in the next few years in your presence up until age seven or so and you're inevitably having to put them in this human controlled environment so it's a real fundamental dilemma of this whole thing is like, you know they're so intelligent and they're so reliant on learning like humans that you put them in a situation where it's human controlled. And that's, that is different to, to animals that are less um, dependent on learning in that way. So that, that's one thing. Um, another thing is I think, um, I should say actually orangutans specifically are different in some ways to other non-human great apes actually. Um, so one thing that people kept talking about was they um, essentially an orangutan growing up who normally mostly be in the presence of their mother and orangutans are notoriously kind of semi-solitary which is an increasingly challenged concept however they don't live in big social groups so they're, they're interacting with all the time so it's much more kind of one-on-one sort of learning that, that young orangutans would have. Um, and I gather that this really translates differently into rehabilitation practices if you're rehabilitating, say, chimpanzees who are very, very social. So you kind of put them into a group and then um, you can release them in a group, basically. Whereas orangutans, they kind of have this interesting situation where they end up, they're kind of semi-solitary in the wild, but then you put them into uh, rehabilitation and they become very social with their peers. And, they, and then you have to release them again and, and sort of, Translating that kind of sociality is is complicated and people have different opinions on it and how how it works and how it should be uh, done in practice. I was going to say as well the whole justification for rehabilitation as well I think is based on that proximity because you know, I was talking about this idea that it's it's unacceptable to kill them or keep them in captivity. That's very much about what kind of creatures they are. Um, and, you know, I did hear a lot of comments of the effect of, you know, to be honest, when it comes to like surplus frogs or whatever no worries about this like it, it's it's not really an issue so the whole reason why it's done in the first place even though it's not necessarily always the most sensible from a conservation perspective is very much about that proximity and there's also this whole and I didn't really talk about this 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 whole kind of um, connection that people have with orangutans perhaps that's something that happens with any species that you're rehabilitating but certainly people talked a lot about sort of looking into the eyes of an orangutan and feeling this instant contact and that being kind of a real motivator for this whole process as well, that sort of effective relationship and that visible kind of similarity.
2: Yeah, I was, I was wondering about that anthropomorphism, yeah, anthropomorphism yeah. that also functions here. I mean, you mentioned about the names, right? Yeah. So, so these animals then are individuals that are seen as individuals with individual personalities and and you know human men names uh, in some sense, right? So, um, so I was wondering how that worked. What, were there conflicts about how, yeah, you know, how much like a person this um, animal should be treated? Yeah,
1: that I think comes into in particular some of these questions about. Um, wildness. There's a sort of idea that, you know, they, um, the whole purpose of, of some rehabilitation projects, at least, is to make them fundamentally orangutans, and by which they mean kind of unhuman. So, you know, make them as, as little like humans as possible, and that's sort of the point. Um, so there's a real kind of um, response against that, that kind of anthropomorphism, I think. Because people are quite conscious of it happening um, at tourism projects and stuff, for example. But it also I think plays into it in, you know, it it's it's a bit more complicated than that because there's also this whole element of like when you're with them, you kind of know that they are quite similar to humans. They're not exactly the same, but it's kind of this this whole dilemma of like, um, how do you how do you deal with a situation where they look so similar to us? So you should maybe assume that they are thinking or behaving a bit like us, but then you have to also separate. So that I think it's, it's, a, it's a big dilemma, I think, and, and people take different kind of perspectives on it. It is partly, I think, down to people's training, where they're coming from, um, and also their sort of focus, like the people who are more focused on wildness, I think will be less... Uh, a bit more wary of anthropomorphism whereas other kinds of approaches uh, are, are happier to have like critical anthropomorphism or something that's a that's a little bit um a bit more like that don't know if that quite answers your question but i, I see what you're getting at
2: Yeah, plays no, into the in this as well. great answer um gabriella you have a question we'll put you uh unmuted so
3: So I had I may pick up on a couple of Dolly's threads. Um, so you sort of said you didn't so I'll start sort of with the applied ethics piece, which you said you sort of didn't put it in that framework. But I'm super curious because I have a friend who does bioethics, yeah, and, and so which is applied ethics, not applied ethics. And so I'm sort of interested on how you try to tease that apart, particularly because of the term triage which also then leads particularly to militarized health situations, but also then got incorporated into sort of emergency room. And unfortunately in the U S now that's they're doing kind of crazy stuff like that. So I I'd love to hear a little bit, you flesh that out a little bit more. And then, Mm -hmm. then my second piece, and if there's not enough time and other people want to ask questions, that's also fine is the sort of, um, Domestication naming. So I study agriculture. And so there are lots of people who name their dairy cows. Or, you know, I do a lot of ag Twitter. And so they name their cows, even if they're beef cattle, and they name their chickens. And so, how, you know, is it because they're domestic versus the wildness that people? Don't kind of want the naming, and if that gets too complicated, it's also you know don't worry. But I thought those were some provocative things that you inspired in your talk.
1: So starting with the applied ethics thing, yes. Yeah, so what what is applied ethics versus ordinary ethics? To me, this could be a slight misinterpretation of, of how Michael meant it. But this is how I interpreted it is um essentially ordinary ethics is something that you understand ethnographically whereas i i when i've read applied ethics and philosophy it's more taking these principles and thinking through how they would apply to different situations it's less bottom up that makes sense like it's it's something that comes out through talking to people about what dilemmas they're facing so that was how i thought about it like i said this could be a misinterpretation of how um like a meant mentor and and others have used ordinary ethics, but that's how I think about it. I think it does end up being quite closely aligned, but where it gets messy is, um, well, actually it gets messy in in a whole bunch of ways. Um, So I talk quite a bit in the book about um, one particular conservationist I spoke with, came off as as quite a conservationist, essentially, when we started talking, he was like, no, no, it's not worth doing this because then, you know, if you let a few die, it's better for the population this way and so on. But then as we got talking, it eventually became clear that a bunch of cats that were sitting around as we were speaking are rescued animals, the street cats that they'd taken in, there were a whole bunch of them. And meanwhile, his partner actually works in a sanctuary for a different species, as in they're not going to be released arguably there's some conservation benefit in like educating people who come by to the sanctuary but it's it's much more of an animal welfare kind of thing so we ended up talking about this and, and he essentially said that it's you know it's muddled was the word he used it's muddled in all of us like am i a conservationist am i a welfareist? i don't know it's, it's and you there's also this interesting thing of course where people develop these different ethical approaches throughout their careers um so if for example they're trained as a vet you kind of end up having to focus on animal welfare so I think partly for that reason partly so partly because of the sort of the muddledness and practice of people's motivations but then also the complexity of the situations they encounter it ends up being very complicated and a lot of the time people have sort of mixed feelings and often they'll just kind of do something and then try to justify it so it, it kind of becomes like a a mixture almost of sort of applied ethics with like um, you know, a much more personal account of of effect and motivation and and all this other stuff that comes into it. Um so anyway, that's applied ethics triage. Yeah, that's interesting about I hadn't really connected it all to the kind of militarization of um of healthcare or anything. I know that the, that's the origin of the term. Um, it is interesting, I guess, that, that people use this term. It, it was essentially the reason I use it in the book was, was it, ethnographically was the term that people used. They didn't so much talk about trade-offs, which is another way I think of talking about the same kind of thing. They talked about triage. And I think it's perhaps an explicit acknowledgement of the fact that you are dealing with animals' lives and deaths, basically. So in that sense, it's very much connected with biopolitics, which I also talk about quite a lot in the book. Um, so this idea that, you know, in order to do, in order to, to, to save life or, or make life flourish, this positive process of conservation, it also involves this negative aspect of, of having to not explicitly kill necessarily. That does happen with like invasive species. In this case, it's much more like we're just not going to go into that area to rescue these animals. Or We're not going to try to conserve this particular forest because it's not important enough went of the money You know, it, it's more that kind of thing. It's more letting die than than active killing um, So not sure really what what else is to say about triage Maybe um, maybe have a follow-up question The domestication naming and wildness. This is interesting. Um, you know I didn't really end up talking much with people about whether and why they name orangutans because just everybody did it it's just it's kind of a taken for granted thing. I do know that there's an interesting history there in primatology with Jane Goodall um, naming her chimpanzees, of course, um, breaking from the tradition of using numbers. Um, I don't know whether that specifically has, has really had an effect there. It's also though something that is quite useful for advertising, if nothing else. Like there's a whole lot of you know, adopt an animal programs, which is one of the major sort of funding sources. And you need that kind of, this is an individual, here's this individual, here's everything we know about them for, for that reason. But people at rehabilitation centers do it anyway. I think this is kind of getting back, I guess, to that question of what is it about orangutan specifically? I mean, there's this kind of level of relatability that just kind of, to some extent goes without saying almost, So there wasn't really much of a a politics about it, but okay. So are they, are they domesticated then is an interesting question. And how does that relate to it? Um, I mean, they, like I said, this this whole mission for a lot of people is to make sure that they're not domesticated, but of course, from the orangutan's perspective, depending on how long they've actually been living with a person, they might be, you know, it might be that the cage or the human home is more kind of their home now. You know, even though there's not a species history of domestication from an individual's perspective, some of these animals have actually kind of been, you know, there's this interesting kind of narrative about the the forest as home. I do talk about this in the book a bit. This, this, um, you'll often see it in advertisements like sending these orangutans back home for Christmas, this kind of thing. So, I do look a bit at home, you know, what is home from an animal's perspective? Um, and actually, it's quite complicated because there's this, first of all, this idea that it's the forest in general. But then, is it a specific forest? That actually really comes into it when people talk about um, translocation, moving uh, an animal from an area that was presumably their home into somewhere totally different. And there's often this assumption that all oh, they'll be fine because the forest is home, right? But then that's increasingly being challenged by by people who are pointing out that actually, you know what, they they might seem semi-solitary, but they did have a bit of a social structure there. They have place-specific knowledge of that area. To a large extent, it's not sending them back home to a different area. You remove them from their home, you put them somewhere totally unfamiliar. So there's that element. And then there's also this whole other question of like, you know, for, for some of these animals, the forest isn't really home and it might not be possible to make it so which is essentially the dilemma you get about certain kinds of unreleasables as they're normally called. Um, so these are the, the, the individuals who for various reasons are perceived to not be able to go back to the forest. There are some obvious ones that everyone agrees about like um, if they have hepatitis or whatever, obviously they have to stay in the cage for the rest of their lives. But then there's a the psychologically unreleasable or borderline ones. Um, these are particularly like, um, males are are particularly difficult because there's an issue with, if you get them in and you don't teach them the forest skills fast enough, they eventually get quite large and potentially quite aggressive. And so it's not safe for humans anymore to be actually training with them. So then, so yeah, it's a bit easier with females because they're, they're a little smaller and a little more manageable for longer. Um, so you end up getting the situation where there are a whole lot of males in particular who, who end up in cages for their lives because there's just not really a chance to make the forest home for them in time. Um, so it's actually a really sad situation and um, yeah I talk quite a bit about unreleasables because they're kind of a they're really emotionally troubling element of this whole process that everyone's thinking about but they don't really like to talk about it publicly because it's mostly just sad it's not really um, something that anyone feels they can do anything about but there is also an increasing push to do more about them because essentially the whole situation as i've kind of hinted is is, um, resources are scarce and this triage has to be done even on the level of where you're going to put money what are you going to put money towards within your project And housing for your long-term residents is something that doesn't really tend to get so much funding. And you can see why, in a sense, they're they're trying to sort of send out the ones that actually do have some hope of of going back to the forest. But it also means that there's this kind of neglected group. Um, Yeah. But different ways of defining it, though. Some people care less about the psychology and the trauma. Some people really care about it.
2: I mean, that's really interesting to think about how home plays in this and how domestication plays in this. I mean, in in my recent book where I'm looking at reintroduction and rewilding, one of the, the big issues is, is do these things belong here or not, yes. right? How do you decide where something belongs and how, how, how much do we take into account what they think about their belonging versus what we think where they should belong according yes. to us, right? Um, and that's really interesting. Uh, Monica yeah. um, had a question now. Monica, I'll unmute you.
4: Thank you very much, Ellie. I study your myself and I have quite a few questions. I'll try to ask only two. <laughs> One is about the whistleblowers. If yeah. you can tell us a little bit more about what goes wrong and what like a few cases examples of this whistleblowing and what what happened there and that's one question and then the other one relates to um, the attachment between the orphans and the, the caretakers. And what um, I kind of know is that there, there are kind of two approaches. One is the approach of Birute Galdikas, who has the theory that, you know, the surrogate mothers and orphans have to be attached to their mothers for many years. And then the other one that is for, described at large by Juno Parrenas with, with the independence and actually kind of trying to, uh, so if, I was wondering if there is a dominant view on this currently, and what are the different positions? I really appreciate that you make you know you make it really clear that it's all so complex and all so muddled. I imagine there's a lot of, of issues there. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, yeah, cool. Thanks, thanks for those questions. I might take the second one first if that's all right, because it's a, almost a bit easier in a way. Um, so yeah, the, the the different theories about how you Deal with the human orangutan bond. Um, yes, yeah, so, so there are, there as you say, there's a variety of approaches here. Essentially, the Brutigaldicus approach, um, which differs, a, basically, there's this idea that having that attachment with some sort of human caregiver is not in itself an impediment to independence later in life. And in fact, it might facilitate it. So, um, this has been particularly emphasized by Lona Drosha Nielsen, um, who started what is now the, the biggest rehabilitation center. So, she's very keen on this sort of you know, you must have this really close bond because it's through this bond that they then feel comfortable to start venturing off on their own um, because then the, the not worried about losing, yeah. So essentially, it's seen as a way of giving them confidence, I suppose. Um, Baruta Gauticus takes a very similar approach, but has a very interesting add-on to this, which is this idea that as orangutans age, they will naturally break that bond with humans because they are naturally semi-solitary, which I find fascinating that particular element of it is not something that everyone else agrees with because it's then, in fact, I would say that's probably more of a minority view that they sort of will naturally become independent. So the approach more taken by um, Lona Drosha Nielsen, which which has also been uh, kind of expanded on and added to by Anne Rosson is this idea that, okay, so so having that bond in the first place when they're really young will give them that independence and confidence. But over time, you've also got to have a rehabilitation method that actively fosters the breaking of that bond. So it's a staged thing where eventually you put them on an island where there aren't humans around anymore, but it's really important to have that close contact with infants. So that's that kind of approach there. It differs a bit to the Viruta-Geldica's approach. I would say that that particular approach taken by Leonard Ross Nielsen was well, quite commonly used because it's, it's kind of generally the, the approach taken at the Borneo Orangutan Survival Foundation, which has two centers, so it's, it's quite a dominant group, I suppose. It's the, it's the biggest rehabilitation group, and they, they would also, I say, have the most political influence in Indonesia. Um, so there's that. Then there's more of a sort of hands off kind of strategy, um, which, yeah, Juniperunas talks, talks about a, a particular kind of approach to it, although to be honest, I've never seen anything as violent as what she describes which is like with hoses and stuff, an approach that is taken at a few projects like um, uh, the Sumatran Orangutan Conservation Project and International Animal Rescue. They both have more of an ethic of sort of like you have to be hands off the whole way, essentially. You only give contact to infants if they really need it, but try to be as hands off as possible even from the start. So there's a different interpretation there of what the bond in early life does to that relationship Um, so that's not that they like i said i I didn't see any evidence that they sort of you know use any kind of violent hands-off kind of approaches it's much more a situation of like they'll instruct people to to not engage if at all possible unless you have a an an infant that is clearly crying out for help and and needs a needs some human contact i have an interesting question though personally about how much how much these different approaches kind of differ in practice. I was mostly focusing on talking with the directors about their rationale, their justification, what they tell their staff to do. But I did also see a little bit of stuff on the ground. And I think if you did a really in-depth study of how much human orangutan contact there is at these different projects, I wouldn't be too surprised if you find it doesn't differ as much in practice as it does in theory, because I think, Like, you know, I was chased around by all these infants. Like, you know, I was constantly having to dodge them. I was told it's hands off. And so I'd be like, all right, fine. And then I'd go and, you know, they'd be sort of coming at me and I'd have to just sort of run away, essentially. It's very hard to be hands off because they're they're normally seeking out human contact. So, and I did see a few cases of this where like people would be like, "Yeah, yeah, it's hands off. So I'm going to put them over there. And then the orangutan comes back. And it's like, well, you know, So anyway, the theory is interesting I think. So that's that question. The whistleblowers, yeah this in the book I elect not to dredge up anything that's not already in the public domain for reasons that I explain in the book. Basically I think um, I didn't I didn't in every case have sort of enough evidence I suppose to really even make a strong claim And there's also this whole political element where people say stuff. And so you kind of have to be a bit, I don't know. It's hard to know who to believe sometimes. Um, So I avoided kind of getting into any sort of new conflicts there. But I did cite a few cases and and there is quite a lot in the public domain, particularly Facebook groups nowadays, um, orangutan frauds unmasked and and similar groups. There's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of accusations Normally, what happens is, um, and this is what I discussed in the chapter, there's a distinction made between people who are kind of trying to do the right thing, but who are just kind of, they've got the wrong idea, or, you know, they're, oh, they're taking this hands-on thing, but they should be doing hands-off, or whatever. That's more of a disagreement about methods, and actually often found that people were kind of, they disagree, but they were a bit more they're often quite sort of respectful of each other's opinions, actually, as well. There was often acknowledgement of, like, you know, they do it that way. I disagree with that. But on the other hand, they are, they are trying and they're out here doing, you know, good work. Probably overall, they're doing more harm, more good than harm. Um, the, the real concerns tended to come when people saw the motivation as no longer being about the orangutans anymore. So that's like, you know, if someone is, is now driven by ego. Um, there's this whole thing about ego warriors. I don't know if that's sort of come through in the public domain much, but um, it's based on, there's a controversial film called Rise of the Eco-Warriors. And it's, yeah, it, it's it, essentially, it's this idea that um, at a certain point it stops being about the orangutans, or maybe it always was. So it's more a concern about, you know, people not caring for the right reasons, I suppose, even though in reality, it's a little bit complicated because no one really gains money from this exercise, but they do gain some sort of moral prestige, right? Like, so it's, it's, not, it's not like it's, it's ever totally selfless reasons per se. It, it's, it's that and it is also a feeling that you're doing good, maybe sort of public, impression of you doing good so it's I think it's a little bit tricky to say someone's doing it for their entrance or for themselves it's you know a bit more complicated than that um but I was going to say so there's the modern controversies about um uh, through Facebook groups um and there's more than one Facebook group actually some of the accusations have been about poor conditions at rehabilitation centers for example um like really bad caging conditions um uh, you know issues with staffing or, or other practices like that. Um, how it goes down, there, there have been a few cases of this, like um, back in the 90s, um, a book called a, a Dark Place in the Jungle, I have a copy somewhere, um, by Linda Spaulding, which is a critical book of Peruta Geldikis, essentially. And in the book, she ends up interviewing a few people who would see themselves as whistleblowers. The there was a court case and a whole controversy about this, but essentially the allegations there were along the lines of no longer doing it for the orangutans um, poor conditions and practices, uh, things like staff being bitten and, and this kind of thing so um it it is difficult to talk about this stuff, though, I think, and I think it's partly because it's such a I mean, you, you can understand it. It, it. It's a complicated and difficult thing to do. So it's quite easy to do something wrong. And also it's, it's so, um, it's hotly political, but it's also very competitive for funding. So I think there's an issue perhaps with if people make sort of genuine mistakes that they don't really feel able to talk about it. But um, I should say as well, the, the, I did speak with a few people who, were, who, who essentially said that they'd tried to speak out about something And what they normally describe as a situation of going first to the person uh, in charge of a project. But the issue, of course, is the power dynamic, you know, will they listen, why would they or wouldn't they listen. So it's essentially this this idea of um, At a certain point, you might want to speak out but but it kind of there is also this argument that like, you know, in doing so. Maybe people don't make a distinction between this orangutan group or that orangutan group. So do you end up harming the entire cause? I found that argument made quite often, you know, like, yeah, it will be a bad public impression for the whole movement. Um, Yeah,
2: so anyway, bit complicated. Absolutely. Bernarna, you had a question.
0: Yeah. So I had originally wanted to ask about uh, in a way the messiness and controversy between the actors. You kind of answer that now. Um, so instead, actually, I thought I'd I'd follow up on your the latest point here on the the orangutans. So are what was the relationship between you and the orangutans in this project? Were you in it for the orangutans? Were they a convenient study objects through which to study, well, ethical dilemmas, uh, and so on.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, basically, I was in it for the orangutans, at least at least to start with. I became interested in all sorts of other issues later. But um, yeah, it's, it's interesting actually reflecting on why orangutans. I mean, the, the original reason I did orangutans for my project prior to this at a zoo was essentially um, this is gonna sound really bad. So we we went in as a, a graduate primatology class to um, do a, a, a bit of a, just a short ethological study of a chosen species in the zoo. And I chose spider monkeys, um, which are quite small. The males and females look quite similar. There were like 20 of them and I just got nowhere. And then I talked with a friend who'd studied the orangutans and she was like, you know what? There are only four of them, they're really distinct. It was it was super easy, and I was like, "Hmm, okay, that's, that sounds <laughs> sounds good." So my masters ended up it, it involved a combination of um, ethology of the orangutans in the zoo and ethnography with the keepers. So I partly chose them for that for that reason that they were easy to study ethologically, but I suppose that through the process of doing that project about orangutans, I I, um, I came to really care about them, and it's interesting actually because. You know, I have this whole discussion in in one of the chapters, which is about how people came to be involved in this and what is it about orangutans specifically. And it's interesting to reflect on actually my own motivations being partly kind of a little bit similar, I suppose. So I I do remember this one moment in the zoo where this uh, adult male orangutan looks, they look look like quite alien creatures, the adult males. They've got these sort of, or at least the the flanged males. They have these cheek flanges. Visitors at the zoo kept describing him as like Chewbacca from Star Wars, which is quite accurate in a way sort of. Um, And yet this sort of alien looking creature looks at, he, he looked at me when I was sort of behind the scenes one day with the keepers. And you just, you can tell that they are thinking about you and what you mean. And they're sort of like maybe making a plan about how you fit in, <laughs> and so there's there's this kind of moment of looking into their eyes where you're like, okay, this is an alien-looking creature, but they are looking right back at me, and they're thinking about something. I know um, I noticed last week actually when we were talking about whales and uh, uh, Rebecca's book, um, this uh, this issue. Of, okay, so so whales, you know, their eyesight is terrible, and and they don't actually, but orangutans they do genuinely rely heavily on vision. They are very intelligent, they, he probably was looking at me and thinking, who is this individual? So I think that probably was fair of me to assume. And that that probably did, I think, have a bit of an effect of like, you know, this is a species that I really care about. Well, a couple of species, three now currently, but a, a taxon. Um, and they are kind of fascinating in a way, even compared with some of the other non-human great apes, because um, Well, probably heard this before, but there's an old zookeepers saying of, um, if you put a screwdriver into a great ape enclosure, the gorillas would try to eat the screwdriver. The um, chimpanzees would use it as a weapon in some sort of social conflict and the orangutan would escape. So there's a kind of like um, very quiet individuality and concentration that orangutans have, which is really fascinating and quite compelling somehow. In a way, they seem less human-like than chimpanzees, for example, who are very sort of—they are very, very social—and you can almost recognize something of ourselves in their social structure. Same with bonobos. Orangutans are a bit different in that sense, but there's something very compelling about them.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've—I've I've thought for a long time I'd wanted to go to see orangutans in uh, in Indonesia. I was supposed to do it once. Um, and it was the week or it was going to be two weeks after they had the revolution. Um, wow. And so that trip got canceled and I, I didn't go. Um, so I was just wondering in the, in the last minute, I mean, yes, yeah, since you visited so many of these places um, and what they do, is there a particular kind or, you know, set up that you would say, oh yeah, you, you could go visit that, you'll get something out of it, versus no, 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 no. Don't don't ever do that as someone who's not studying this.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to say that actually as tourists, you can only visit a couple of projects and they're normally with rehabilitated orangutans already rather than active rehabilitation sites. Although that is a little bit complicated in one case. So there's not really a tourist site that you can go to but that is demonstrating current rehabilitation practices so much if that makes sense um but yeah that's tricky so is there sort of a best project a best practice I think it's a bit complicated there are a few that uh, they kind of disagree with each other in some ways but they but they are clearly making a real effort and doing a really good job um the ones that are always cited are um Sumatra Orangutan Conservation Project, International Animal Rescue, Borneo Orangutan Survival Foundation. Those are sort of the, the major big ones. There's a, a small project that's recently been set up by primatologist, Senior Pershoft, which is really interesting. Um, I haven't seen that particular project because she set it up quite recently, but I think that's she's got a very... And those people that I've named, they all, they do disagree with each other in some ways. As I mentioned, there's the hands-off, hands-on thing. That's just one kind of example. But I think there might also be a situation of they don't necessarily always agree on everything, but they kind of have recognized that they agree enough about the general principles to kind of be on board with each other. But having said that, there's this interesting problem that's um, it's been happening for a while. There's been this vague effort to try to set up um, Indonesian government guidelines for how to do rehabilitation so like a set of protocols that will actually be issued and, and regulated and enforced um, so who do you ask about that that's a that's a major issue <laughs> um, and essentially the person who's in charge of this I asked her about this and, and I said you know so was everyone consulted she was like well yes but you know at a certain point like it's impossible there there are too many heads as she put it to like too many heads in the room um, so it's impossible to please everyone.
2: Yes, exactly. Well, you pleased us with this talk. So I just want to thank Ali um, Palmer for talking about her new book, Ethical Debates in Orangutan Conservation, which is out with Routledge um, this year. So um, we thank you very much for coming and talking about it. Thanks very much for having me.